Cold Die. I'm Lucas, also known as Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings about cryptography, technology, and whatever else is on my mind recently. This is going to be a bit of a special edition on the recent post-quantum cryptography standards. Not that I planned it, just that I happened to look at my backlog of topics this afternoon and a few coherent ones around the standards process came up. So I thought that might be an interesting sort of theme to have for this episode. So, I mean, let's set the background first. So the reason why we care about this post-quantum cryptography stuff is because of quantum computers. So we're sort of at the stage where we understand in theory what quantum computers could do. And that's break a large amount of cryptography. Specifically, uh, quantum computers could break a lot of public key cryptography because they're able to do certain things much faster than we know how to do on a classical computer. And by classical computers, we mean, you know, your laptop, stuff like that. And this also refers to sort of a model of computing where you have like a processor and you execute instructions sequentially on bits and stuff like that. The difference with a quantum computer is that you operate on quantum bits, which instead of just being zero or one, can also be in superpositions. And this sort of gives you some advantages in certain situations. Now, you can't just uh, try all possibilities at once and stuff like that. That's a common misconception. Instead, when you measure a qubit, you get... If it's in a superposition of, of several states, you're going to get one of those states at random. So if you were to just... For example, let's say you wanted to try and evaluate all possible inputs for a function. Well, you could get your, your state into a superposition of all possible inputs, and then evaluate the function, and then measure it. But when you measure it, you would only get one of the outputs. Like you'd get basically one of the inputs at random and then the function evaluated on that input. And you know you can do that with a classical computer too, just sample some bits at random, evaluate the function and do that. So you need some kind of special structure in your problem for the quantum computing to give you an advantage for classical computing. And it just so happens that there are some problems that we use for cryptography, which are actually kind of easy on a computer. And in fact, they're all sort of related. So there's this algorithm called Shor's algorithm, which can break basically two important things for, for cryptography. One is that it can be used to factor numbers quickly. And that's used for RSA, which is one slightly older crypto system that's sort of going out of fashion, but was sort of the first uh, public key cryptography construction we had. And the other thing it can do is it can find, it can solve uh, what we call discrete logarithms. So these are used much more prominently now in cryptography. And so the idea is that you have this sort of uh, group <laughs> and in this group you have sort of an element that generates it. And you can think of this as well, you can reach, you have points at this group, you can add points together, 
And this generator can reach all other points just by adding it to itself several times. So maybe I do, if I have my generator is called G, I can do G plus G, that's one point, G plus G plus G, or three times G. There's another way of writing that down. That's another point. And so every other point in the group is K times G for some K. And the problem that we need to be heard is that if I just give you a point, uh, it should be difficult for you to figure out which K it is such that that point is equal to K times G. And that's called the discrete logarithm problem. And it turns out that Troy's algorithm can be used to find this logarithm efficiently. And because factoring and discrete logarithms are easy on a quantum computer, whereas we don't believe them to be hard to be easy at all on a classical computer, this creates a problem for cryptography because we've been relying on this hardness of factoring discrete logarithms to create very cryptographic primitives. And these primitives have led to schemes. And if practical quantum computers came about, then these schemes would be broken. So in terms of practical quantum computers, uh, you know, we're still at a stage where we're, we're getting the very basics of these systems up and running. So at the moment, I don't know what the, the record for the number of qubits is, but um, we're at like maybe hundreds of qubits. And also one thing to note is that when people talk about qubits, there's sort of two different things that, that they talk about. So one is a, a physical qubit, and so when people talk about records for the number of qubits, it's usually this. So a physical qubit is basically a hardware thing. It's something you can manipulate at the hardware level. The problem is that you might have a lot of noise in this qubit. And in fact, uh, there's too much noise in qubits themselves to really use them for algorithms that you want to implement, like Troy's algorithm. So when we say that Troy's algorithm to break this specific scheme might need, you know, X number of bits. What we're talking about instead is logical qubits. And these mean basically qubits that are essentially perfect and don't have any noise when you operate on them. And what's interesting is that it's possible to use a large number of physical qubits to construct one logical qubit through what's called quantum error correction. And the idea is that you basically it's sort of it's sort of analogous to, to normal error correction. So that traditionally is you you're sending some kind of message and you know there might be corruptions. For example, if you're sending it as a, like a radio wave or something, you know your your wave might get distorted or it might become too faint, so you might not be able to decode parts of the message. So one way you could you can make the message more decodable is like you send it multiple times. So that's one way of encoding the message, just that you can recover it even if parts of the signal are lost. And quantum error correction is sort of like a version of this except you try and have one logical qubit represented by many physical qubits such that even if there's some noise when you operate on them, you can still treat the whole unit as one coherent logical qubit. And we're still not at the point in terms of our physical machine constructions where we can do this error correction. Once we're able to do that, it's possible we might see a rapid acceleration of quantum computing because from that point on, all we'd have to do is just construct larger and larger quantum computers. Because right now, not only do we need more qubits, we also need qubits that are better. And getting better qubits seems to be a harder engineering problem than just getting more of them. So, yeah, there's that. So this brings us to NIST standardization process. So, I don't know 
remember when exactly it started. I think it was around 2018 or so. So NIST, for those not in the know, is an American organization, part of the government, which develops or really writes down standards for different technologies. And in particular, they've been involved for quite a while in standardizing different uh, cryptographic instructions. So you might have heard of, say, AES, which is the Advanced Encryption Standard. And so that was a competition, or rather the result of a competition run by NIST to select a, a new scheme for uh, symmetric encryption. And starting in 2018, they ran a similar competition, which is, I guess, still ongoing, although we were renewing the end of it, for standardizing post-quantum cryptography. So what this is is not... Uh, as you might have a misconception about algorithms for doing cryptography on quantum computers, but rather algorithms for doing cryptography, which would remain secure even if you had quantum computers with which to try and attack the schemes. And they were interested in getting standards for two different kinds of cryptographic schemes. One is signatures. So with the signature, you want to attest to the validity of a piece of data. So basically you have your key pair, you can sign with your signing key, then you also have a verifying key, which you can make public. And anybody with the verifying key can check that you signed a message, but without the signing key, they can't create a signature themselves that will verify. And that's already a construction that's very commonly used outside of the post-quantum stuff. Another type of cryptography they wanted to standardize was what's called a KEM, K-E-M, or Key Encapsulation Mechanism. And this is sort of like public key encryption. So public encryption, you have a private key and a public key, like with signing. Uh, you can encrypt a message to someone using their public key. Anyone can do this. And only they will be able to use them to, to read the message by using their private key to open it. And so with public key cryptography formulated as such, you have this sort of this arbitrarily long message. Uh, you know, in practice, you can't really encrypt arbitrarily long messages in a public key fashion directly. So what you do instead is you encrypt a key and then you use that key with symmetric encryption, like with AES. And this part where you sort of encrypt a key is sort of one way to do what we call a chem. And so a chem more generally is sort of the way the primitive works is that you create this encapsulation. And in this encapsulation process, you end up with a key, which you can use to encrypt data symmetrically. And you also end up with this ciphertext. And if you send the ciphertext to someone, they can use their secret key to open it up and get the symmetric key that's, that's bundled inside somehow. So one, one common way this ends up working is that you do actually generate a key at random and sort of encrypt it. But that's not necessarily the, the way you might end up doing it. So these were the two kinds of schemes NIST wanted to standardize. And so the way this kind of competition works is that at the very start, uh, NIST called for, you know, announced that they were doing this, this competition and asked for a bunch of teams to, to submit uh, their solutions for these schemes, like how they wanted to achieve them. And this was a, an open process in the sense that anybody could participate and create a submission. 
the submissions had to meet certain standards, like the unit had to have paper, had to have, I believe you had to have code as well. I think they asked for reference code in C. So anyhow, at the very beginning, you have a bunch of submissions, and then you had a series of rounds. So we just reached the end of round three at the beginning of July. And at each round, basically, they eliminated some some schemes because there are already attacks published on it because during each round, you sort of had the time to review other people's proposals, write papers about them, say, oh, I found an issue with the claims that this team is making about their scheme. You know, it's not as secure as they claim it, to, it is and stuff like that. And so at each round, you sort of narrow down the competition. And at the end of this process, we have one scheme standardized for chems and three scheme standardized for signatures. So for chems, we have Kyber is the only scheme that got standardized. This one is based on lattices. For signatures, we had two schemes based on lattices. One is called Dilithium, which is a sort of related to Kyber in that it's the, the same sort of team that submitted both of them. Uh, they were under this package called Crystals, which is why they have, the names are kind of puns. So Kyber is a, is a crystal from Star Wars and Dilithium is a, is a crystal from Star Trek. Then you have Falcon, which is another lattice-based signature scheme, which was included as well because it has shorter signatures. Uh, it does have some disadvantages in terms of implementing it securely because Falcon requires you to do floating point arithmetic in constant time, which is quite tricky. So I think really the only secure implementation is the one Thomas Pornin gave. Thomas Pornin is sort of a, a, a constant time savant. I'll call him that in, the, in this podcast. He's a he's a he's a neat dude who's worked on a lot of uh, interesting stuff with the cryptographic arithmetic. He's the author of the Bare SSL library, which is a library for TLS, which also strives to be constant time and secure and small, and has a lot of other neat properties. As sort of a tangent, I when I wrote my bachelor thesis slash project, I did it on constant time arithmetic and Barrisasil's docs were like an invaluable resource for me because he has this huge you know explanation of different techniques for doing constant time arithmetic on big numbers and stuff like that but I don't want to dwell too much on constant timeness because that's another topic I want to visit uh, more completely on this podcast at some point and then finally the last signature scheme that was standardized was Sphinx or Sphinx plus I think and that one is not based on lattices, but is instead based on hashes. And uh, all honesty, I don't understand hash-based signatures all that well. I know that they sort of involve this tree of hashes because you take a signature scheme that needs some state, and you make it stateless by sort of encoding the possible states in this big tree. So it has some disadvantages compared to lattice schemes in terms of signing time and, and key sizes but it doesn't depend on any of the security assumptions you need for lattices. So with lattices, like with other cryptographic families, for example, I mentioned discrete logarithms before. So you have a bunch of uh, schemes which use very elliptic curves and they all sort of boil down to the security of the discrete logarithm. With lattices, you have this similar situation. You have a bunch of different schemes with slightly different ways of doing things, but they sort of all boil down to the security of lattices. Uh, I don't think I'll explain what a lattice is in this podcast. Maybe that's for another day. A lattice is a thing. 
you could think of, of lattice cryptography as sort of noisy linear algebra. You're doing matrix multiplication, but with some noise there. The noise is such that if you have some secrets, you can you can undo it, and the noise doesn't affect you. But if you're an attacker, the noise is the noise makes your life very difficult. I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. And that was sort of the result of the competition at the end of July. One scheme that I would have liked to see standardized was picnic. And so this one is based on what's called MPC in the head. So that's a technique for non-interactive zero-knowledge proofs. And so basically what they did is they, they created this non-interactive zero-knowledge proof scheme. And then they proved to create a signature scheme that the statement, I know the pre-image of hash function. <laughs> that's essentially what they did. And that creates a signature scheme, which is quite neat. Uh, the only thing is that the reason it was, it was rejected, at least according to NIST, was that it used this block cipher called lowMC, which was less scrutinized than other well-known block ciphers like AES. And so with lowMC, the reason they use it is because it has a very low number of AND gates. And the reason you want a low number of AND gates with this MPC in the head stuff is that with our current schemes, the proof size is proportional to the number of AND gates in your circuit. So the more AND gates you have, the more bits you have in your proof, which means you have larger signatures in the end. So by choosing a cipher that minimizes the number of AND gates, you have shorter signatures. There was a variant of Picnic, or rather an evolution of it called Banquet, which used AES instead. Unfortunately, I think the timelines didn't work out for it to be included. Otherwise, Banquet might have been standardized. As a whole, though, the, with the MPC and the head schemes, it might be too early for them to be standardized in the sense that there's still a lot of stuff in limbo, unintended, with these schemes. There's probably a lot of optimizations we can still do. So, yeah. Maybe in a few years, they might end up being standardized, but that might be through some kind of IETF RFC rather than a, a NIST process, but that's fine too. And so the reason I, I spent so much time talking about the standardization process was that I sort of wanted to bring up the point that for all of this, you don't really need to trust NIST. So whenever the topics of NIST and cryptography come up, people sort of say, well, you know, the NIST is closely affiliated with the NSA and then both being government agencies. And in the past, NSA having sort of leaned on NIST to push standards that were not as secure, or in some cases backdoored, like with the dual EC DBRG random number generator, which is a story I don't know enough about to really get into detail here. But in essence, some people sort of distrust standards because they say, well, you know, NIST could have intentionally select, selected uh, candidates which were insecure, or maybe they planted standard, uh, candidates which had backdoors in them. So actually, it's just, a, it's just a way to get less secure cryptography into users' hands. And I think that's kind of unfair, because really, you don't need to trust NIST. You need to trust the fact that 
cryptographers were well incentivized to break each other's schemes over the past five or so years. Uh, you know, if you found a break in someone's scheme, that was a huge moment for you. For example, um, Lord Berlin's broke rainbow in a weekend on his laptop. He has a paper about that, and I think it was accepted either into Eurocrypt or into crypto this year. So yeah, it's if you break one of these schemes, it's a, it's a, basically a free free uh, conference acceptance. <laughs> I don't I don't know if that's actually how it goes down. And certainly Ward's paper was was well written, and his attack was pretty pretty ingenious. But you know, there's there's certainly no lack of incentive to break uh, this stuff. And all of the schemes underwent quite a bit of security from other cryptographers. So in terms of NIST leaning on certain standards, well, you can debate about that a, a long time, but ultimately, if you don't like NIST, you can look at sort of the result of the process, look at the submissions and papers that have been published yourself and make your own opinion if you're really not that convinced about it. Another concern that is a bit more legitimate is the sort of patent situation. So this is, once again, a very technical thing I'm not really an expert on but there's basically been some fud about there being patents which might affect certain candidates like kyber which was the, the kim candidate candidate that's uh been standardized and nist in an attempt to sort of quell this discontent or fud about patents has tried to reach some licensing deals with the holders so it's not even clear that these pens actually apply, but NIST is sort of doing this anyways. That way, in both cases, there's not gonna be any, any issue with implementing the standards in terms of violating patents. And one thing I dislike about this licensing scheme is that if you wanna tweak the standards in any way or modify them, then you might be encroaching the patents. And if there's ambiguity about whether or not a scheme is covered by patents, in some sense, it legitimizes or acknowledges the coverage if you do try to get a license. I don't know if that's a coherent legal theory, but it sort of kind of makes sense that if I get a licensing deal for something, I'm sort of acknowledging that it does cover the thing I'm trying to do. So there's that issue. In general, cryptography patents make me kind of mad because when you have a scheme that's patented, it's it's like kryptonite for cryptographers. Like nobody wants to touch it with a ten foot pole because they it's just too much of a headache to license it, and it really just prevents you from building anything on it, and it freezes the space for a long time. So as soon as things have been patented, people sort of kind of routed around the technique and try to find alternatives. Um, in elliptic curve land, one example of this was Schnorr versus ECDSA signatures. So Schnorr signatures are sort of like the most natural way to do signatures, I'd say, with elliptic curves or groups in general. But unfortunately, they were patented, and this led to the creation of ECDSA. Well, that's a theory for why DSA was created, ECDSA being the variant of DSA that uses elliptic curves. So some people say DSA was created as an explicit effort to route around the patents of Schnorr signatures. I don't know if this is true, but this is certainly plausible. And in practice, what has led to DSA being used for so long, even 
there was a period of overlap, I think, where people were still using DSA and new schemes despite Schnorr signatures being out of patent window. And the reason being because people just weren't aware of this, so. And DSA is, I'll go ahead and say, an inferior scheme, and that is, it's less sound cryptographically. It's not insecure, it's just harder to prove its security. And it's much less convenient. That's just completely objective for threshold signatures. Threshold Schnorr is much simpler, much easier than threshold DSA to say. This is because threshold Schnorr is uh, completely linear with respect to its inputs. Uh, basically, if you if you have a secret key and you split it up such that I have one part, you have another part, and if we add them together, we have both parts of the key, then sort of the entire signing process also has this sort of property where at each point in the signing process, we each have one half and we can add them together to do this. ECDSA has this nasty property that at one point you need to multiply two of these parts together. And if you have parts that are shared additively, it's difficult to do over multiple people. So that's that's a, a little note on threshold ECDSA, which is also another topic I'd like to visit in this podcast at some point. So there was some fun about patents. Patents suck in general, so that's sad. But I, I, I really think that's mostly fud and some whining about not winning and having your preferred candidate get knocked out of the running. But this sort of brings me to another interesting point, which is how these things are going to be used. So. While post-quantum cryptography has been standardized, it's not going to replace all of our existing cryptography tomorrow. First of all, the standards, well, basically they're done in the sense that we've selected the candidates. There might be a few more that make it through the fourth round, but at this point, we know things that are going to make it through. We have at least one chem and one signature we can use. The actual standard documents haven't been written. They're probably not gonna change that much from the current round three submissions, I think. But there might still be some tweaking of parameter sizes and stuff like that. And so then after the standards are written, people can start working on implementations. Well, really, I mean, people have already written implementations for most of these things, but people could start agreeing on which implementations to use. And even once you have libraries that are vetted, vetted audited, and all of that stuff, It'll still take a while for it to get adopted. So one of the main places cryptography ends up being used today, just in terms of pure volume of traffic, is, is TLS. And that's the sort of encryption standard for internet communications. So anytime you connect to a website, you do it most likely via HTTPS. And the S means that you're using TLS underneath. So TLS is, is sort of the protocol that lets you send bytes back and forth between computers. And there have been experiments, Cloudflare has done a lot of this with their research team on adding post-quantum aspects to TLS. But even then, if you wanted to get very widespread adoption, you'd probably need some kind of standardized variant of TLS, which includes post-quantum cryptography in some capacity. And then it would take time for people to upgrade to that version. 
uh, or write libraries which make use of the implementation. So just because you have libraries that implement the basic schemes we've standardized, it's going to take a while for that to propagate through standards to actual higher level protocols, and from that to companies actually using the new versions of those protocols. And you also have a whole bunch of other cryptography beyond just TLS, which would need updating too. And the point I wanted to get to is that actually, when we talk about updating TLS to the post-quantum world, we're not talking about replacing everything. Usually what people are experimenting with is what's called a hybrid approach. So this is where you do both classical cryptography and post-quantum cryptography. And this might seem a bit useless at first, because if you think about it, if quantum computers are a threat, then the classical cryptography doesn't do anything. And so it might seem the actual classical layer is superfluous, but really it's sort of a hedge against the idea of the post-quantum schemes getting broken. The idea being, well, the classical schemes, they've been around for a long time, so there's more confidence that they're secure. So people are less worried about them getting broken. Whereas with these new post-quantum schemes, they're somewhat new, so people might be afraid that they might get broken. There's been a lot of scrutiny through the standardization process, so I think a sudden new technique for breaking them is unlikely, but it's still much more likely than with schemes that have been here for two more decades than these newer schemes. So by doing hybrid, you use both of them at the same time, so you need to break both. So that's sort of a hedge against both quantum computing and the schemes being broken. Now, if quantum computers become a threat early and the schemes are broken, well, you're sort of out of luck. And you might think, well, if quantum computers are going to take a while to arrive, why do we even care about migrating now? One reason for this is that migrating systems takes a long time. So if you want to get stuff done completely in two decades from now, I mean, you kind of need to, first of all, get a standardization process now, because by the time, as I mentioned before, you write the libraries and then the protocols and then all the applications get switched over to new protocols that would take a, a, quite a while. So that's why you sort of need to get started today if you want to get everything done before quantum computers arrive. But there's also another interesting threat model which I want to spend a, quite a bit of time actually going over. And this, this model is that Someone could record encryptions today and break them later in the future with quantum computers. For example, I could record all the, the internet traffic between some important people, and even if it's encrypted now with public key cryptography, if in the future I have a quantum computer which can break it, since I've recorded all of this communication in the past, I'll be able to decipher it and then figure out what was said at the time. For some applications, this might not be too useful. For example, if I'm trying to, you know, decrypt the connection between you and your bank to steal your password, well, it's possible that, you know, 20 years from now, you may not be using the same bank account or you might have changed your password since then, hopefully. <laughs> so that's not too useful. But for example, if I want to, you know, decrypt uh, the communication between a politician and, well, some other head of state, that might be interesting, you know, from a historian's perspective 20 years from now, but it also 
might still be some salacious stuff that you could use against that politician, as an example. And I'm not an expert on like top secret classifications, but some documents are meant to stay top secret for quite a long while. So if you want something to still remain confidential in 40 years, you need to use post-quantum cryptography now, presumably, because someone could be recording this encrypted secret information and be ready to crack it once the quantum computer arrives. And this should be contrasted with signatures, which is the other thing that got standardized, because with signatures, that's more so about authenticating someone in the now. So with signatures, what you could do with, with this sort of future quantum computing model is that, well, you could you can make it appear that someone sent a message in the past. So like, I could forge a signature from the president saying that, that something happened. So you could alter, alter like historical documents. But in terms of present day attacks, that's sort of less useful. And this model is pervasive when you think about messaging protocols in general. So one interesting discussion that happens on Twitter, I think I talked about this recently with uh, Sophia Celli from Brave. And I also mentioned it before is that messaging protocols like Signal are like highly reliant on classical cryptography. And the way you might update them to the post-quantum world is not particularly evident. And you also need to keep into account uh, the threat model you want to use. So one thing Signal uses is something called ratcheting. So with ratcheting, the way it works is that as you're communicating with someone, you do essentially re-derivations of a key. So to explain this, let's, let's first perhaps take a step back towards uh, key exchanges. So a key exchange lets two people establish a shared key while only sharing public messages. So I can send some public messages, do a little protocol somebody, an eavesdropper reading the connection uh, won't be able to learn what final key we end up with. And this final key is a secret we can use to then bootstrap some communication. So we can start using it to encrypt messages or use it to derive more keys to do stuff, etc. And with ratcheting, you do this key exchange process sort of continuously. As you send messages, you, you do extra key exchanges and you sort of mix these into your state, which determines how you encrypt messages. And this means that an adversary that wants to compromise your, your communication needs to both compromise your, your sort of state in the past to, to be able to, to read your messages up to that point, but also they need to sort of stay there because they need to keep compromising these exchanges because if they ever miss an exchange, then you have some key material that they don't know about, which got mixed into your secret state. And then from that point on, they won't be able to decrypt messages anymore. So this ratcheting is interesting because it forces adversaries to be active. And from a post-quantum perspective, it also forces you to record the entire conversation. Because if at any point I, I don't record one of these key exchanges, I won't be able to decrypt all the communication that happens after that, even if I have access to a quantum computer in the future. And this means that if you want to you know, decrypt a conversation, it's not enough to just decrypt the messages. It's not enough to just save the messages you want to decrypt in the future. You instead need to save the entire transcript from beginning to end, or from beginning to the point at which you stop caring about what they said.
And so that's quite a bit more effort. So that's sort of an interesting property, but it's more of a mitigation than a real hedge. Now, the utility of this is sort of brought into question. So one way, one way you might bring this into the post-quantum world is you say, okay, I'm going to replace these ratchets with, uh, you know, quantum versions of these. So hopefully keep some kind of key exchange thingy, which is quantum secure. And then I also make sure that the start of the protocol where you establish your first keys to, to kick off the, the messaging session, those should also be post-quantum secure whatever's key exchanges, what have you. And this means that you've basically translated the security, everything about it gets translated to work also with quantum adversaries. So if someone has access to a quantum computer now, they won't be able to do any more than they could with a classical computer with the old protocol. So that's one way to translate things. Another way is you say, well, I just do the quantum stuff at the beginning. So you, a post-quantum adversary, won't be able to attack the beginning, but then for the rest of the ratchets, I do classical stuff. And in this way of doing things, what you care about is the threat model of someone in the future having a quantum computer. Because if you think about that, it's still secure because they won't be able to attack the root of your session, which sort of determines everything that happens after it, and is sort of one big component of your state. Because in order to attack that, they need to have a quantum, they, even with a quantum computer, they couldn't attack the initial root exchange, which uses post-quantum cryptography. So if you did that, then the ratchets don't necessarily need to be post-quantum because you just care about the quantum computer in the future, not the quantum computer now. So even if they were to break all the ratchets in the future, well, they couldn't break the post-quantum cryptography, which started out the session. And that root of the session also needs to be known to break everything that follows. So that would be something to consider. If you, if you have an active quantum adversary, then this doesn't work because one of these properties that we mentioned is that you want, even if your state gets compromised at some point, you need to still actively monitor all the exchanges to continue to compromise the state. And so if a quantum adversary compromises your initial state, and then you do classical key exchanges to ratchet, I mean, that's pointless. And this sort of brings us to the question of post-quantum key exchanges. So this is a, a term I've trotted out, but there's a, a slight issue with that. So when I say key exchange, I sort of mentioned it in a somewhat abstract uh, way earlier. Concretely, we use something called Diffie-Hellman, and this is not a very abstracted construction. It's very specific to groups, and it doesn't translate well to the post-quantum era. So you can use a key exchange to make a chem, which is the, the thing we standardize for post-quantum cryptography, but you can't exactly make a chem to do a key exchange. So with a chem, it's one-sided. I'm sending a key to somebody else. With an exchange, it's sort of two-sided. If you have two public keys, there, there is a, a secret that's shared between the two public keys, and this is symmetric. It's not one-sided like with chems. And also with chems, if I, if I chem someone something, it, that's sort of ephemeral. Like, there's nothing tying that to me, the sender, if you just use a basic chem. So first of all, one thing you'd want to do in a key exchange is you want it to be somewhat two-sided. I want... One thing I want is I want to get a key to the, to the receiver. 
so that we can start messaging. But the receiver also knows, wants to know who I am. So in some way, I need to authenticate this, this sending so that the sender can be convinced that it's me and not somebody else who's, who we were talking to. So you need not just a chem, but what's called, what you might call an authenticated chem. So when I send someone a message with an authenticated chem, I don't, I don't, well, I can't satisfy myself with just having their public key. I also need to include my private key so that the resulting ciphertext that I send to them is bound to me in some way. So one way to do this is with a signature. So I don't just send them a ciphertext, I also sign it with my private key. And then when they open it, they can verify that I signed it. And so this is an authenticated way to establish a key. And this is analogous to the way Signal's triple Diffie-Hellman works, where they include both exchanges between one-time keys and longer-lived keys, which establish your identity. And so the resulting key is bound both to the identities of the people involved, but is also randomized. And so that's sort of what an authenticated camp could give you. Now, one issue with this authenticated chem is that you lose uh, this interesting property of deniability. So with the key exchange and the Diffie-Hellman sense of it, there's no signature involved. You sort of mix these different exchanges together and it ends up authenticating you, but there's no trace of it. You ju you're just sort of sending these, you all you have to do is send these ephemeral public keys, which are just completely random. And the final result incorporates the authentication implicitly. So it just won't work out. You won't get the same keys if the authentication is wrong. But there's at no point is there like a piece of data you can check to authenticate someone. Whereas if you did this with a signature, if you're, if you're eavesdropping, you can see the signature get passed and say, oh, I'm gonna try and verify this. And if the signature verifies, it's kind of an attestation that this session happened. So if I know that these two public keys correspond to say two political figures, this signature is in some sense proof or evidence that they communicated at some point. And so what you want with these, this kind of key exchange is for you to have deniability. And what this means is that there shouldn't be any kind of evidence that two people communicated just by reading the transcript of messages exchanged between them. And at first, this seems like a property that's very intrinsic to Diffie-Hellman and that you can do this implicit kind of authentication. It turns out that with signatures, you're not actually stuck because one interesting, you can, an interesting thing you can do is what's called a designated verifier signature. And so with this, it's a signature, but instead of just signing a message in the blue, you sign a message for a specific recipient. And only this recipient should be able to verify this message. And the sense in which we mean this is a bit funny because what we mean is specifically that the recipient can forge a signature that, that targets them. So if I'm Bob, I can create a signature which is designated to Bob, even if the signature is Alice or the President of the United States. So if I'm if I'm Bob and I say, oh, the President of the United States sent me a message that was designated to me, well, no one's going to believe me because I could have just forged that signature. 
So in some sense, it means that there's no evidence because the only person that will be convinced of a signature targeted towards a person is that person because anybody because because that person knows that they didn't forge it because <laughs> they'd remember it if they if they forge it. But everybody else, they're not convinced because they're like, well, you know, the recipient could have forged this message. How do I know that the sender actually actually attested to it? Another property that's that's a bit harder to formalize is that you don't even want someone to realize that there is a signature. So someone who doesn't, someone who's like, well, you know, I don't think Bob actually forged the signature. I don't think he's smart enough to know how to do that. So the fact that there is a signature that does verify is probably evidence that something happened. Uh, there are ways you can you can set it up so that you incorporate extra stuff as the output of the chem and sort of like extra that with the signature. And this is sort of a way of encrypting the signature so that not only can the recipient forge signatures, but also the, the recipient is the only person that can decrypt the, the wrapping around the signature in order to get something they can verify. And this is sort of one way of of making signatures more opaque. So if you use this this kind of designated verifier signature with hiding, you can get something that achieves all the properties you got before with your classical Diffie-Hellman exchanges with implicit authentication and whatnot. So you can get this post-quantum key exchange which doesn't have any kind of deniability. Well, rather, you have this post-quantum key exchange which does have deniability, which means it doesn't leave any kind of trace of communication. And if you do that, for the initial sort of a session and then do post-quantum ratchets where you would have done classical ratchets you now have a post-quantum secure messaging system so yeah probably a bit too convoluted for a podcast that was sort of an overview of of post-quantum cryptography uh let's say one one more topic to finish this off since we're on the signal and messaging topic and that's uh signals metadata leakage that's sort of something i wrote down that i want to talk about so one interesting thing about signal or i'd say good thing about signal is that they've gotten sort of government information requests a few times and in each of these it's kind of funny because the government asked them to provide you know a bunch of information about their users to the extent of their ability and their ability is well we can tell you when's the last time each user logged in to signal which is not much information and this is mainly a result of the fact that they don't keep that many logs. And certainly they're, they're claiming to the government to not keep any logs, so that's probably a relatively serious commitment because otherwise they'd be sort of lying to the government and that's not, uh, that's not something that will keep you out of trouble, let's say. You're gonna probably end up uh, running into the law if you, if you lie as a business for too long. That being said, there's actually a lot of data that Signal could, in theory, keep about its users, which it doesn't. For example, the way Signal works is that each user on their phone or their desktop, whatever, connects to the service, the Signal service, and then when you message someone, you do this encryption protocol on your phone or your device, and then you end up sending this encrypted message, or maybe even bundle of messages or some other encrypted data like images or stuff like that. Signal maybe, I don't know to what extent Signal is aware of the exact, exact contents. Because one way of doing it is like, Signal knows you sent an image, it just doesn't know what the contents are. Another way is saying, well, Signal knows you sent something, it doesn't know if it's an image or text or whatever. Anyhow, they see that you've sent a blob of data to someone else. And one thing they could do is they say, well, you know, this person 
sent a blob of data this time to another person and this blob had this size because that's something they're going to be able to tell us like what the size of each thing is and even just recording who messaged whom at what time is, is already a very interesting amount of data so this is what we, we might call metadata because it's not the actual contents of the communication it's just information surrounding the circumstances of the communication but that can already be enough to establish evidence against you for example, if I know that one you know, public identity is like some kind of drug dealer or something, and I know that a bunch of people communicated with them, you know, those might be targets to, to investigate as potential customers. Or, you know, maybe uh, I'm trying to look for businesses that are evading sanctions against Russia. And I'm saying, well, you know, this Russian businessman on Signal, he was in contact with all these people at, the, at, at these times. And that's just looking at the metadata. Now, you know, Signal doesn't store any of this data but they could and so one interesting question is to what extent you could design a messaging service which isn't able to record this data at all so one approach is to instead of having a centralized server you have sort of a decentralized server and this makes the metadata harder to trace another thing you could do is is that you could try and connect a signal over something like tor and so if signal before were to hypothetically, you know, instead of saying signal, I'm just going to say messaging service because I don't want to slander signal and allege that they're doing this. I'm just saying, you know, in theory, <laughs> messaging services could be doing this. Maybe I should say telegram or something like that. Telegram is even, isn't even uh, encrypted. Anyhow, so let's say your messaging service is centralized. So you connect to it via Tor because before you're worried about them recording your IP and when you sent messages out and to whom. And so if they're tracking people via their IPs, if you connect to something like, uh, if you connect to the messaging service with something like Tor, then that would obfuscate your IP and they wouldn't be able to trace it back to you. There are other issues with using Tor, but let's not get into those for now. Um, one issue here is that uh, your messaging service may not identify you with your IP. Instead, they may identify you with, for example, your public key. And this might actually be something that gets sent around. For example, when you establish a, a session, you need to know which public keys are involved. Also, sometimes you make a request to keys associated with a public key without getting too much into the detail of how these messaging protocols work. But sometimes, sort of the way it works is that rather than using someone's public key all the time, you use sort of a, a, an auxiliary key that they sign, which maybe they change every week or so. And so then there's a record of you fetching some data associated with a public key. So you could probably make tweaks to the protocol so that there's less communication about public keys, but you still run into the IP problem and you're not gonna get everybody to use Tor on their phones, especially if you want a messaging service that everybody uses by default, you know. Apple is, is, is may eventually move towards this with their private relay stuff. Like maybe one day they'll have that integrated by default into iMessage. But it'd be pretty interesting for them to work on actually. So one approach, instead of having Tor as a sort of external layer that people have to use, is you could use some kind of anonymous routing inside of the service itself. So one thing you might do is you have this cluster of services instead of a centralized service and they do mixing themselves. So with mixing, the idea is that as I receive packets, instead of sending them as they come and go, 
Instead, I wait to receive a bunch of packets, I shuffle them around, and then I send them out. And this means, from an external adversary's point of view, what I see is, okay, over you know 10 minutes, 100 packets came into the server, and then a bunch of packets came out. And uh, the, the server can re-encrypt things, or, or rather, when you, when you send a message to the server, it's also encrypted for that server specifically. Inside, there's the encrypted message for the recipient, the person you're communicating with. But an adversary looking at the traffic, they see one blob going into the server and another blob coming out. Even if it's the same message being routed through, on one end, it's encrypted from you to the server, and on the other end, it's encrypted from the server to someone else or to the recipient directly. So back to the mixing. You have 100 packets or so coming in over a certain time span, and then another chunk of 100 coming out all at once. So it's not possible to check or to figure out which packets in the output correspond to the packets in the input. So this is why it's called a, a mix. And you can do several layers of mixing. So maybe I do two hops before I get to the recipient. So first I send it to the server, it mixes, it sends to another server, which also mixes, and then sends to the, the person at the, at the end. This makes it very difficult to track. And the advantage of having several servers is that I don't need to trust all of them, just one, to do mixing. Because maybe one of them wants to log metadata. <laughs> but if, if, I, if I can sort of choose the servers I, I route to and I have several layers of them, all of them sort of need to collude together for the mixing to be broken. Unfortunately, that requires having multiple services. And part of Signal's philosophy is that it's difficult to iterate on the protocol and to create features that users want to, want to have if you have to sort of be beholden to a bunch of decentralized services which are rigid and slow to update their protocols. So one thing you might try to do is to have a single centralized service, but which somehow proves that it's doing mixing correctly. This is something that's, that's quite interesting to me. I asked about it on Twitter and someone linked to me a paper which I haven't gotten time to read yet. But there is, uh, there is this concept of non-interactive anonymous routing, which is sort of like a centralized service proving to you that it's mixing packets correctly. So if you were to do this, then you could have Signal set up as a centralized service, which also proves to you that mixing is happening correctly. And that'd be sort of a best of both worlds, because Signal could have the same server configuration they have today and also iterate with the same speed they have, but also provide this mixing service. Now, personally, I, I, I trust Signal quite a bit, and I don't think that they're logging any of this metadata. I want to be clear about that. But it would be a very interesting additional layer of security that you could have, and an additional layer of trust you could have towards the service. I also think you could do it without too much of a, of a cost. One disadvantage of Mixnets is, in the example I gave before, you have this sort of window. And in this window, you have to gather packets and nothing's coming out. And this means you add latency because you have to wait until the window is over to send packets. There's sort of ways around it. You can do like continuous mixing, but no matter what you do, you're going to add latency. With messaging, this is perhaps less critical because it's already designed to be asynchronous. If you're doing, say, a, a voice call, the mixing is, is not going to work out well because like there's, there's too much latency. If you have one second of delay between you and the other person, it's going to be very difficult to hold a, a video call. But for messaging, if, you're, if your message is delayed by one second, that's not the end of the world. Because most people take, you know, seconds at least to respond. 
and type out their message. And, you know, sometimes messaging conversations happen over like hours where like you send a message, you wait for an hour, you get, you get another response back or like other situations like that. So I think messaging is, is a lot more appropriate for, for MixNets. So hopefully some people end up, end up working towards that. This also a project I might want to do at some point is, uh, is making a toy mixing signal kind of service. I've implemented uh, signals basic protocols before. Not an interoperable example, but just as a as a fun toy project. That was a pretty good learning experience. You definitely dig into the details of these key exchanges and whatnot. Another thing about Signal I'd like to explore more, so I'm going to leave as a, as a cliffhanger for this podcast, is Signal does contact discovery. For example... If, you're, if you've ever used Signal before, you might have noticed that your contacts on your phone that also have Signal, they're automatically available to message. And it does this by having this sort of contact discovery mechanism where it, it uses, essentially, it uses your, your phone book to try and discover other people on Signal that have a phone number that's present in your, in your contact book. And so to avoid revealing all your contacts to Signal, they have this this secure enclave mechanism where they use Intel's SGX enclaves to sort of prevent signal the servers from being able to read your, your contact books. That's sort of a high-level idea of the scheme. So one question, which I'll leave to you as homework. <laughs> I'm joking. One question is, can you replace this secure enclave setup with multi-party computation? So could you have people routed through signal, communicate amongst themselves in order to figure out who's in their contacts and not. Or even, could you set up sort of a centralized encrypted phone book on signal servers, and there's a way to sort of query this phone book to learn the public keys of other people you're interested in without signal you knowing what you're querying. That's sort of an interesting thing that maybe I'll explore more as a topic in this podcast at a future date. Anyhow, I've been going on for quite a bit of time already Hopefully this this podcast was understandable and maybe even enjoyable. Uh, at times I felt like I was getting a bit rambly, and some of these topics were were a bit technical and maybe would have warranted some blog posts. If you're interested in blog posts for some of the topics I covered, uh, feel free to message me on Twitter, by the way. Or if you have any other feedback or criticism, or I got something wrong, also don't be afraid to message me. Uh, anyhow, this was the cold dive. And I was Lucas, a gay Chrono Kirby, and see you for the next episode. Bye.